Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 56, Sebastian Cabot. This might not be directly relevant to listeners outside the UK, which is most of you, but I wanted to take a minute to quickly talk about a Latin America, London-related issue. Britain doesn't have a large, visible Latin American population. However, one of the things that makes London, in my opinion, one of the best cities in the world, is that you can name any country and it will have a community there, performing their music, selling their food, giving you a taste of their homeland. London is home to two markets where the Latin American community has established itself. One is in Elephant and Castle, and the other is in Seven Sisters. Whenever I'm back there, I try to visit both of them, and luckily, the Seven Sisters one is just up the road from where I usually stay with family. They are really vibrant, authentic places. And besides the services they offer to people like me or anyone else who wants to visit them, they're also really important community spaces. They provide London's Latin American community with a place they can use to connect with each other. So it's places like these that make London so great. But of course, this is London in the 21st century. Whenever there's something interesting, there's also a development plan that wants to knock it down and turn the area into something shiny and unaffordable. This is the case for not just one of the markets, but both. Southwark Council wants to redevelop the whole of Elephant and Castle and fill it full of chain shops and restaurants. They also plan to knock down a lot of the nearby council housing and then to replace it with yet more expensive flats that no ordinary person can afford. To do this, the council has enlisted the help of a developer, which has set up the company it's using for the development in the British Virgin Islands, a known tax haven. The owners of the building where the Seven Sisters market is, in conjunction with Transport for London, is planning to redevelop the site. In both cases, these plans don't include much support for the Latin American market store and business owners. Finding them a place in the new developments does not appear to be a priority. In both cases, however, the community has organised and is trying to fight back 
The Elephant and Castle Group has managed to win some concessions and it seems that some of the small business holders will be relocated. There are still 40 who won't be though. In Seven Sisters, the business owners have drawn up their own plans for an alternative development which would allow the building owners and Transport for London to do what they want while still providing a space for the market. Things are coming to a head in both cases. The Elephant and Castle development is due to start in a month. The situation in Seven Sisters is more precarious. Evictions have already been taking place and of course the market, like everywhere else, had to close because of the coronavirus lockdown. Now that businesses have been allowed to reopen in the UK, the market remains locked, with traders being unable to access and run their businesses. As I said at the beginning, this won't be particularly relevant to most listeners, but if you are someone who is ever in London and wants to help preserve these places, I wanted to draw attention to their campaigns. You can find them by searching for Latin Elephant and Save Latin Village. There are petitions you can sign, information about relevant politicians you can contact, and you can also donate money if you're so inclined. If you find yourself in London, and they're still open, you can help out by simply going to one of them, having a look and buying some food. Today's episode is a sort of follow-up to both the last one on Alessio Garcia and the ones on Magellan. It tells the story of several linked expeditions to the southeast of South America, and draws this succession of episodes focusing on this area to a close. Sebastian Cabot is a figure whose association with Britain and North America is better known than his work for Spain. He did, however, spend some time in South America, working for the Spanish crown. His father, John Cabot, was also an explorer, and he was born Giovanni Cabotto, We don't know for sure which part of Italy he was from, but we do know that he spent some time in Venice working as a trader and sailing around Europe. At some point, Sebastian was born. We're not sure exactly when or where. He may have been born in Italy, but he is recorded as saying that he was actually born in Bristol. Eventually, John's business ventures started to go wrong. He went bankrupt and then fled to Spain to escape his creditors. From here he moved on to Portugal, before eventually ending up in England. It was the mid-1490s by this point, and Columbus had recently completed his first two voyages to the Americas. John managed to get himself commissioned by the English king to sail westwards. He undertook several journeys in which he explored the coast of Canada. Sebastian may have been on one of these voyages, but we can't say for sure. We do know, though, that following in his father's footsteps, he led an expedition there in 1504 and another in 1508. On this second one, he attempted to find a route around the top of Canada to the Pacific. This search for a northwest passage will continue for centuries. He then went southwards along North America's Atlantic coast and may have gone as far as Chesapeake Bay. By the time he returned, however... The king had died. The new king was less interested in new world exploration, and Sebastian found himself out of work. His next few years were split between Spain and England, as he tried to secure backing to launch new trips. Eventually, he was appointed as Spain's pilot major. In the Magellan episode, 
I talked about how his expedition wasn't considered a success at the time and said that the Spanish wouldn't end up exploiting his route to Asia. Well, that's true, but they hadn't given up on the idea just yet. Immediately after the survivors of his trip returned, new expeditions were sent out to round the bottom of South America. Cabot was commissioned to follow Magellan's route. He was specifically asked to determine where the line drawn by the Treaty of Tordesillas was. It was known, roughly, where the line fell across the Atlantic and South America, but the other side, the Asian side, was still largely unknown. There was a line here that separated Portuguese and Spanish territory. Cabot was asked to find out exactly where it was. Now that it was proven that Asia could be reached via the west, Spain believed that the Spice Islands might be within their zone of control, and if so, they could now be accessed without having to pass through Portugal's area. Cabot was also given the supplies needed to set up a colony there. As it turns out, they were correct that some land on the Asian side of the Pacific was within their zone. Half of the island of Papua and the very northern tip of Japan, as well as New Zealand and the eastern third of Australia, were all on their side of the line. Today the Spice Islands are part of Indonesia. The easternmost part of the country is the western part of Papua, and this neighbours the Spice Islands. This means that the line, drawn up with no knowledge of exactly where it fell, by chance just gave the islands to the Portuguese. This won't matter for this story though, as we shall see. Cabot was not the first person the Spanish had sent out to do this job, since the remnants of Magellan's expedition had returned to Spain. He left in April 1526, but in January, a man named Diego Garcia de Moguer had set off to do the same thing. We'll talk about him later in the episode. Before Diego Garcia, though, in July 1525, a man named Garcia de Loesa had left Spain to follow the western route to Asia and search for the Trinidad. The Trinidad was the ship which the survivors of the Magellan expedition had left in the Spice Islands. It was the one which planned to go back across the Pacific, but which was captured by the Portuguese. In order to help locate the Trinidad, and guide them through the Strait of Magellan, Elcano took part in the expedition. They followed much the same route as Magellan, and encountered many of the same problems. As they tried to enter the Strait, Storms wrecked two of their ships, and one abandoned their mission. Its crew decided to sail back to Spain. One of the surviving ships was blown south of the strait, and may have reached Cape Horn, the very end of the South American continent. Rather than rounding it, though, they went back to find the rest of the fleet. Eventually, the four remaining ships made their way through the straits to the Pacific. Here, more storms delayed their progress, and the ships were separated. One sailed north, and managed to reach the safety of Mexico. Another was lost completely. There is a theory that they may have reached New Zealand, and to do so about 150 years before the officially recognised date for New Zealand's discovery from a European perspective. This theory is not widely accepted, however. The third ship reached Indonesia, but it got beached, and most of the crew were killed by the indigenous people there. The last ship did reach the Spice Islands, and eventually, around 20 men made it back to Spain, taken there from the Spice Islands by the Portuguese. 
Presumably, they were taken as prisoners, having breached the Treaty of Tordesillas, but information about this whole expedition is hard to come by, so I can't say for sure. Either way, the survivors can claim to have completed the second circumnavigation of the world. Neither Loesa or Elcano made it back. They both died of malnutrition while crossing the Pacific. Of course, the fate of that expedition was unknown when Cabot set off. He took with him a mixed crew. About half were not Spanish, and several were Englishmen he knew from his time there. There were also two survivors of Magellan's expedition. They headed first to the Canary Islands, where they spent 17 days, before crossing the Atlantic and reaching northern Brazil. Here they found one of Portugal's logging camps, inhabited by only a handful of people. The weather was against them, and they spent three months anchored there. During this time, the Portuguese told them that they knew of Europeans further down the coast. These were the men who had been shipwrecked with Elacio Garcia, and who had opted to stay on the coast rather than follow him on his raid of the Inca. The Portuguese also apparently fed Cabot stories of silver and gold, just waiting to be found in the interior of South America. I've seen it speculated that their intention was to distract Cabot from the Spice Islands, so that Portugal could continue to establish their claims there without his attempts to interfere for Spain. It seems that Cabot was easily distracted, and he started suggesting to his men that they abandon the dangerous Pacific crossing and look for riches in the Americas. When the weather cleared, they continued down the coast to reach another Portuguese logging camp. This one was at São Vicente, near today's Sao Paulo. From here they continued until they reached the island of Santa Catarina, the same one where the stranded survivors of Solis's expeditions were said to have been shipwrecked. Here, history repeated itself, and Cabot's flagship hit a sandbank. It sank, taking with it a good portion of the expedition supplies. Finding an abundance of wood there, they spent three and a half months building a new ship, an impressive feat considering their position, but surely no replacement for the one they'd lost. This one was much smaller. Here they also discovered the two remaining men who had been shipwrecked with Alessio Garcia, as well as 15 more Spaniards. These men had been on the ship which had abandoned Loesa's expedition. You might remember that last episode I mentioned that Alessio Garcia had sent some of his Inca silver to the coast, and that it had been lost while attempting to load it aboard a ship. Well, that ship was the one that had abandoned Loesa. Its captain had discovered them by chance. And after losing the silver, he sailed off and abandoned them, along with these 15 Spaniards from his own crew. He then stopped at the Portuguese logging camp up the coast. And this is how the people there knew about the Europeans and the silver. So now the maroon sailors were able to tell Cabot the story of Alessio Garcia and the White King they were able to confirm that there did indeed appear to be riches to be found, and to give him the state of Loesa's expedition when the ship that the 15 men were on had abandoned it. That state was beset by storms, separated and unable to enter the Strait of Magellan. An already distracted Cabot was starting to weigh up his options. Pulling him towards the idea of staying in South America was the lure of riches. 
pushing him away from his actual mission, were several things. They knew getting to the Pacific and then crossing it was dangerous, and these new reports confirmed that further. They were also now lacking in supplies, and his men kept dying of disease here on Santa Catarina. That might not sound like a good reason to stay, but it meant his ships would be undermanned for the Pacific crossing. Cabot decided that they would abandon their mission, and instead they would try to follow in Elatio Garcia's footsteps. He faced some opposition to this. In fact, a small group had been opposing him since their arrival in Brazil, and several of the leaders had been imprisoned on one of the ships. He quickly dealt with all this by marooning these leaders on a nearby island. Cabot then ordered his ships to sail up the Rio de la Plata. A short distance upriver, they stopped for a month at the spot where the Paraná meets the Rio de la Plata. One day, from one of their ships, they noticed someone waving frantically at them from the riverbank. They had found a survivor of the Solis expedition. They took him aboard, grateful to be rescued, and having lived among the Guarani, he agreed to serve as their translator and guide. He told them that their ships would not be able to sail very far up the Paraná, so Cabot sent some of the ships ahead up the main river. A short distance later, they stopped and built a fort, which he named San Lazaro, the first European settlement in what is today Uruguay. Cabot soon joined them, and leaving twelve men behind, he decided to take the smaller ships as far as he could up the Paraná. When he got to roughly where today's city of Rosario is, he founded another settlement and named it Sancti Spiritu. This was the first European settlement in today's Argentina. The men at San Lazaro were picked up and brought to his new base. Next Cabot took around a hundred men and set off further up the river. Now the ship they'd constructed at Santa Catarina came in useful. Due to its smaller size, it surely would have struggled to cross the Pacific. Here, though, it was perfect, as it could go further up the narrowing river. Until now, they had been able to hunt and gather the food that they needed. The indigenous people they had encountered had largely been friendly, and they had shared their food with them. Here, though, it was different. They struggled to obtain enough food, and they found the locals less willing to help out. They had brought some of the friendly indigenous people with them, and it appears that the groups up here were on bad terms with the groups their guides were from. This may partially explain the increased number of attacks they found themselves fending off. As they reached the Paraguay River, which flows directly into the Paraná, discipline was breaking down, and there were attempts by small groups to abandon the expedition. Cabot had no intention of changing course, though. Some of the people they were now encountering, the ones who weren't trying to kill them, were wearing gold and silver jewellery. They told him that the metal came from the mountains further to the west, so they pushed on until finally a small group which was sent out to try and find food was massacred by a people they called the Agassiz. Eighteen were killed and ten more were wounded. For the members of the expedition this was the final straw. People were dying from disease and hunger. Other groups had already been killed by the indigenous peoples, and several more had been killed as punishment for stealing rations out of desperation, or for trying to run away. Among those that did run away was the man they had rescued earlier. Things must have been desperate, if after years among strange people in an alien land, 
he decided he would rather go back to that and stay among his countrymen. Reluctantly, Cabot agreed to return to Sancti Spiritus. It wasn't long before Cabot set off again. He took with him a larger group this time. His first aim was to conquer the Agassiz. He would establish a base in their territory, and then launch a campaign to find the fabled mountains and the silver. This didn't happen, though. Instead, things took an unexpected turn. Earlier on, I mentioned that another explorer had set off from Spain, led by Diego Garcia. We know less about this one, but amusingly, we do know that, like Cabot, Garcia had been seduced by rumours of silver, and had also abandoned his mission to cross the Pacific. Diego Garcia was a survivor of both the Solis and the Magellan expeditions, and he had been commissioned by the king for exactly the same mission as Loesa and Cabot. We don't know where he heard about the fabled riches of South America, or exactly where on the continent he had been up until this point. But we do know that soon after setting off, Cabot bumped into him. The encounter was an awkward one. Diego Garcia was initially hostile. This was Spanish land, according to the Treaty of Tordesillas. So who was this English-slash-Italian person? It was explained to him that Cabot was working for Spain, and that diffused the situation. Both men, however, were aware that they'd been caught. Neither was supposed to be here, and neither had wanted news getting back to Spain that they'd abandoned their missions, until they themselves had returned with riches and new territory, which could be used to justify their decisions. For Cabot, there was also the added problem of the descent he had faced, and the men he had marooned earlier. He felt this reflected badly on him, and if news of it got back to Spain before he did, it could be a problem. The two men decided that the best thing to do was to work together. They returned to Sancti Spiritus, and Cabot slyly sent a ship back to Spain with a messenger, to tell the king how great a job he was doing, and that it had definitely been the right decision to stay in South America. And perhaps, could he have some more men and supplies? Cabot and Diego Garcia then went back upriver, and decided to follow a tributary which ran westwards, the Pilcomayo. Before long, though, they were arguing. Both wanted to take full command, and neither was willing to accept the other's authority. It got to the point where they both decided to abandon their explorations, and head separately back to Spain. Here they hoped to make their case, and persuade the king to sanction another expedition at the exclusion of the other. The decision was also partially motivated by the fact that they had left Sancti Spiritus completely undefended. This resulted in it being raised by indigenous people. They arrived in Spain within days of each other, and began petitioning the king. I don't know about Diego Garcia, but Cabot was being investigated for abandoning his mission. He was also facing charges from the families of the men he had marooned. It seems that this counted against him. He was found to be in the wrong, and Diego Garcia was given the rights to explore the Rio de la Plata. Cabot was fined, and it was ordered that he would be exiled to Iran in today's Algeria, although it doesn't appear that his exile actually happened, and he retained his pilot major position. It's not clear what he did for the next few years, but it looks like he went around Europe, trying to get backing for more exploration. Eventually he returned to England. 
At the time, the English were trying to establish trade with Muscovy, the state based in what we call Moscow, and the forerunner of today's Russia. A corporation had been established called the Muscovy Company, which aimed to facilitate trade and to find a route around the north of Scandinavia and Russia. Cabot became governor of the company, and seems to have devoted most of the rest of his life to this work. I can't find much information about Diego Garcia's second trip up the Rio de la Plata, but we know he did make one. If I find anything out, I might include it in a future episode, but for now, it appears nothing much came of it. We do know that later in life, he worked for the Portuguese, and that he explored the Indian Ocean. Today there is a remote atoll there, which bears the name Diego Garcia. It's not known what happened to the translator. Presumably he lived out the rest of his days among the Guarani. We also know nothing about the dissenters who were marooned, except that they didn't make it back to Europe, as there were others who abandoned the expedition at various points, or simply disappeared, it seems likely that there may have been tiny ragtag groups of Europeans left scattered all over the region. I would love to know what happened to them all. Cabot and Diego Garcia referred to the Rio de la Plata as the Rio Solis, after Solis, who had first encountered it. Soon, though, the rumours of silver started by the Alessio Garcia expedition, and then encouraged by Cabot and Diego Garcia, led to it being renamed the Rio de la Plata, which translates to River of Silver. Later the name Argentina came to refer to the land around the river, and it too derives from a word for silver shared by the Romance languages, including Spanish. Never mind that very little silver was ever actually found, and that what was found came from far to the northwest in today's Bolivia. Like El Dorado, the myth proved to be a powerful one, and the name stuck. So now we leave that part of the continent for a while. There are a couple more loose ends to tie up in the north of Spanish America. Spain will be back in South America soon, but their efforts will be focused in the northwest. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America and that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T If you have any comments or questions feel free to get in contact at historyoflatinamericapodcast at gmail.com You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo thanks for listening
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.